The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. I want to do something in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This is the final section of this book. We're going to finish 1 Thessalonians today. And the last week we looked at the first 11 verses of chapter 5, and it was all about the day of the Lord, if you remember that. And uh, in verse 11, at the very end of that section, he says, Therefore, since these things are true, they were worried that the day of the Lord had started and that what they were seeing was the judgment of God upon the, the earth. But Paul explains that's not what's happening. The day of the Lord has not arrived. And then he ends up this way in verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. Encouragement is a wonderful, wonderful assignment we have from the living God. This is how we're supposed to treat each other, is by encouraging each other. This, this, this whole issue of uh, encouragement is wonderful in the New Testament because the, there's, a, there's two different words used in the New Testament, and there's another different word used in the Old Testament. It all has to do with, if you listen to the English word, encourage, it means to put courage into people, to treat them in such a way that you, you build them up and you give them new strength to follow Christ in the present situation we are in. And this is what he's calling us to do. He's calling us to live such a life with each other that we produce encouragement in the lives of people. We fill them with wisdom and power and strength. And uh, that's, what our, that's what our assignment is here today as he tells us, now I want you in light of this fact Yes, the day of the Lord is coming. And there are some things in the day of the Lord that could scare you to death because God, because God is bringing, sending his son to bring judgment and purifying on this earth. I don't know about you, but to th- even think about living on the earth that was perfectly pure and sinless is really hard to take in, isn't it? That when everything is the way it's supposed to be, the Hebrew word for that is shalom. You've heard that expression, shalom. That's how Jewish people greet each other. But the word shalom means when things are the way they're supposed to be. You remember, when, you remember that? Don't, do you? We've never had that yet, but we, the day is coming. And it's going to start with the, the perfect, the perfection of Jesus Christ being manifested in his judgment on everything that is against God and is attacking God, and that's going to be removed from this earth, and we're going to live in an in a, in a environment in which the, the glory of Christ is predominant. So what he's telling us to do now as we await that day, we don't know when it's coming. This was written back in about 50 AD, and it still hasn't taken place. So we don't know when the day of the Lord is coming. If you do know, please don't tell me. But it's, we don't know when it's coming, but it is coming. And so this is what we're supposed to be doing until it comes, and that is to being people that are encouragers in the local church. The title of this message is Become an Encourager of Your Church. What I mean by that is the people that you worship together with, people that you have come to be a part of. The Bible says that um, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it says, in one spirit. The reason, the way we got into, into the spirit, we're told over and over again that it was Jesus Christ who baptized us into the Spirit. Every believer has been baptized into the Spirit. And so now we are in the Spirit. And he says, in one Spirit, we were all made, we were all, we were all, we were baptized. Yeah, but I'm using in, we're in the Spirit. We were baptized into him. So in the Spirit, we are one body. That's, that changes everything. We are one body. You know how it is in your physical body? When your, your left arm is not getting along with your right arm, you know how that is? Or your foot or your ankle or something is not cooperating with things? It wreaks havoc, doesn't it? Well, we are one body in Christ, and every member, every saved believer, every believer who is saved, and every saved person is a believer, and we now are in this one body together, and we are supposed to live like it. And so one of the things that we do, we are supposed to do, is to encourage each other. Every believer is equipped to bring encouragement to other believers. And so this is what he requests of us. He beseeches us. He talks to us as though he's one of our friends. 
He doesn't talk down to them. He doesn't talk like he's the boss and they're all the, the minions. He is saying to them, my brothers and sisters, I request of you, I beseech you, become an encourager to fellow believers in the body of Christ. And what we're going to see in this passage, there's several things. He's going to mention four different groups that we are to be encouraging. He's going to mention leaders in the church, adversaries or opponents. You probably think, well, there's no such thing as they're in the church. Hang around. Yeah, you can always find somebody who's opposing what you're thinking and trying to accomplish. That can happen because we not, have not been perfected yet. Yes, we have, have a perfect standing before God, but our standing and our state is different. That is, our situation is different. Our constitution, the way that we live our lives, is different from our per- perfect position before God. You have been justified, which means that God, the one lawgiver and judge, has declared you to be right with him because you believed on Christ. But that doesn't mean you can't sin. We, are, we could all testify to that. We still have in us this brokenness. We still have this capacity to not be what we ought to be. And so we need to encourage each other. And that's what this whole passage is about, beginning in verse 12, down through the end of the, the book. And you heard it read this morning by Tony in his ESV. And that was good. I'd love to hear that. Um, and so in order to emphasize the true nature of leaders, Paul describes them in this way. And what he does, he just tells us three functions. Is he talking about three different groups? No. He's talking about one group. One group of leaders, but they're doing these three things. They are the ones who are diligently laboring among us. Now, because I'm a leader, I've got to confess to you that I don't always, I'm not always diligent in my labor. The word labor means to work to the point of exhaustion. And uh, I get exhausted, but it's usually not because I'm working so hard. Now, some people are. I mean... Uh, some of you work so hard, you get literally exhausted, exhausted. But he says these leaders are called to labor within the body of Christ in such a way that they diligently labor among us. Secondly, they have charge over you, which means they stand before you and they walk before you and they say, this is so scary. Follow me as I follow Christ. Have you ever said that to a fellow believer? Look, just follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Because all of us are so aware of our shortcomings. One of the things that I love about the Christian life is that God doesn't want us to believe that we're perfect. We're perfect in standing, but not in state. And he knows that we fall short, and so we can come to him. And what does he tell us to do when we fail? Does he tell us to go into a conniption fit? or go go into the mully grubs or whatever. No, he says what we are to do is confess our sins. And he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And as we do that, we grow. We actually grow and become more like Christ. So the function of these, these leaders in the church are those who diligently labor among you. They work hard to the point of exhaustion. They have charge over you. That is, they are pace setters. They are committed to living in such a way that you could follow their example. That's what we're supposed to do. And I got to tell you, that's scary as all get out. We're supposed to live in such a way that you could follow us and be following Christ. Isn't that amazing? 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, that's what Paul says. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so we say it to you. We say it apologetically only in the sense that apart from Christ, there's no way I could do this. I could never live in a way that you could follow. I would live in a way that I would say, don't copy me, whatever you do. But if I follow Christ in humility, somebody gave me a book recently, and it's called Passion in Preaching. Preaching with Passion. It's a great book. The only problem is, after reading a bit of this book, about 25 pages, I realized, you know what? I don't know how to be compassionate or impassioned in preaching. That's something only God can do in me. The only way this could happen is if he does something in my heart and gives me a desire 
and expresses that the way Paul describes it. Remember what he said back in chapter 1, verse 10, verse 5? He says, as you know, our gospel did not come to you in word only. Now, it did come in words, but he says not in word alone, but it came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with much full conviction, just as you know what sort of men we became, when he means by that, we were made to be, when we were with you for your sake. What is he talking about? He's saying that God does something supernatural in the lives of those who serve him. He actually works in their lives. You know, and, and that's, this is the cure for discouragement over how immature you are, if you ever get that way. I mean, we should, but every once in a while we think, wow, I sure wish I would grow up. I sure wish I could grow in my, in my pursuit of Jesus Christ. Well, guess what? He's able to do that. He's able to produce that in our hearts. And he wants to. And so that's their, their functions. And this is what he says we ought to do in regards to them. How do we encourage them? How do you encourage leaders? I don't mean this to be self-serving. I just have to, to tell you what he says. This is Paul. Paul says, first of all, appreciate them. It quite, quite literally just means know them. You know how it is. Have you ever noticed this? I have never met a believer that once I got to know them, I didn't appreciate them. Because after all, I began to think about what has happened to them. They have received the Holy Spirit of God who opened their eyes to the reality of who Christ is. I realized that Christ is living in them and that the Father is living in them and that they've been given eternal life so they can know God. That's what the Bible says in John 17, 3. God gave you eternal life so that you could know him intimately as a friend. And so when we get to know fellow believers, we discover that they are really wonderful people because God has been at work. God has been at work. And sometimes when you first start meeting believers, sometimes you're really caught off guard. You can't believe how God can do a work in people that you, they look like they're just ordinary folk. You know, there's nothing all that special about them. But then you get to know them, you realize God is doing a work in their life. He's actually affecting their heart. They're actually loving Christ. And it shows up in their life and in their interaction. And so we are to be encouragers to them. And this is what he says we're to, to do, is that we are to appreciate them, esteem them very highly for their work's sake. In other words, because of the role that God has given them, you're to, you're to highly esteem them, and, and that is going to help them take seriously this calling that they have. Believe me, there's always the temptation to bail out when you are in a place of ministry of any kind. There's always this temptation. This is just too much. I need to, get, I need to move on to something else. And so what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to esteem them. We're supposed to love them, appreciate them. And we're supposed to live in peace with. You notice what he says in the second part of verse 13? In peace with who? With one another. You know, you want to bless leaders in a local church? Get along with the other people in the church. Love them. Minister to them. Encourage them. That's the most encouraging thing in the world to people that are involved in leadership on any level within the church of Jesus Christ. So live in peace with one another. There was a lot of friction in the church at Thessalonica that we hear about. When we, in fact, when we look at the second book, we're going to take just three weeks to look at the, the second book of Thessalonians. And we'll see that there were issues going on in that, in that church. And they were only three years old, probably. Or they were probably l less than that. Paul had stayed there for about three weeks, maybe a little longer, but we don't know that. But we know he was there for three Sabbath days. And so he was there for a short time. So this church isn't very old, but already they have some disagreements and they have some issues that they don't see as they should see. And so Paul teaches them. One of the great things about the Apostle Paul is when he saw problems among God's people, he taught them how to deal with it. He taught them what they were supposed to do to make things right. Remember how Jesus did that all the time? I mean, you remember him telling you that, 
hey, don't try to get the speck out of your neighbor's eye when you've got a log in your own eye. Now, I know none of you are ever guilty of that, but that can happen, can it? When I got faults that are so big and glaring, and yet I'm worried about fixing you, fixing somebody else, getting them straightened out, rather than me doing what God said is take the log out of your eye first. And then you'll have the vision, you'll have the ability to help your neighbor as he wants you to. So we are to encourage each other. The second group he mentions is, are, are your opponents. That is, those who tend to stand against you. And he says, this is what you do. You don't throw up your hands and say, I'm going to go to another church. These, these people don't love me enough. I admit it, we don't love you enough. But we have the Holy Spirit, and he's always urging us to love you like we should. That's what he's called us to. And so this is what he says to do, admonish the unruly. Now, unruly is a military term. You know when a guy, a soldier breaks rank and he doesn't do what he's supposed to do? That's somebody who's unruly. Well, in this church, there was a group of people that are called unruly. And what they had done, they were probably young men. We don't know for sure, but just the way he describes them. And that is that they refused to work for a living. They refused to labor for their own needs. And some Bible scholars believe that the reason was that Paul talks so much about the second coming of Christ, that why should I get a job? Jesus is coming back at any moment, and you have plenty of money that you could make available to me. I could eat well at your table. And so Paul calls them unruly because they've been called to labor with their hands so that they would have not only enough for themselves, but they could give to others. And that's what God calls us to do. He calls us to give, not only to meet our own needs, but to meet the needs of others. And so what Paul says is admonish the unruly. Now, admonish is an interesting word. It's a word from which we get a technical term for counseling called newthetic counseling. Back in 1986, there was a new book on the market, and it was called Competent to Counsel. And it was written by Jay Adams, and what he was basing this on the book of Romans, chapter 15, where it says all believers are competent to counsel. Or at least Paul said he was confident that the believers at Rome were competent to counsel, competent to do this kind of counseling. Well, this counseling, this is normally translated admonish. It's called, the Greek word is nuthetao. I know you're going to remember that. Nuthetic counseling. Nuthetic counseling is when instead of giving medicine and drugs, you actually tell people the truth. I mentioned before about Bob Newhart. You heard him, his uh, his approach to counseling. He demonstrates on one of the YouTube uh, videos, and he basically says, stop it. And he says it over and over and over again. This is how you counsel people, stop it. Well, uh, Jay Adams wasn't quite like, he, he's not near as funny as Bob Newhart either, and he's 90 years old now. I had him as a teacher. Wonderful guy, but he always told you the truth. And sometimes that's hard to take, isn't it? And, and he, was, he was prone to that. And so he, he wrote this book, and it became popular. It really, it really had a big impact on Christian ministry of counseling by being honest with people. Speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love means you tell people the truth, but you don't hate them. You love them, and that's the reason you're telling them the truth. And so that's what he was talking about. And then he says the second thing Paul says is comfort the small soul or or the faint-hearted, I think it's translated in your Bible. But it means small-souled. Your soul is too small. Uh, there's, there's, uh, the Hebrew expression is short-souled. <laughs> your, your soul is too short. Maybe your body is just too long. I don't know. But anyway, uh, a small-souled person is a person who doesn't have what he needs to have in order to live this life of commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's always feeling overwhelmed. Now, soul is a word in Scripture that's used over and over again. If you remember, this is the word that, that Peter uses uh, when he says that our souls are saved by faith in Christ. But what he's talking about, the salvation of our souls, is our souls being renewed. Now, the soul is a wonderful part of being a human being. We're created in the image of God. Sometimes people get upset about Christians having emotions. You know, you know, I don't know if you've ever read this kind of material where it really upsets them that it's like the, it's the caboose, remember? 
the caboose on the end of the train, Campus Crusade uh, track. And it's almost like, well, that's just something that you put on the end. No, the reason you have emotions is because you were created in the image of God. And guess who has emotions? The God of the universe has emotions. He loves, he hates, he gets angry, he gets happy, he gets delighted. He experiences emotions and he created us in his image so we have this capacity to feel life. Wouldn't it be horrible if you didn't have any emotions? Wouldn't it be horrible if you couldn't feel life? When was the last time you were happy? Some of you, I can't tell. Have you been happy lately? Isn't it wonderful to be happy? That's, that's a part of our, our, uh, the fact that we were created in the image of God. He gives us this capacity to enjoy life, to feel life. It's like Peter said, though you haven't seen him. Remember 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, even though you haven't seen Christ, you love him. And though you're not seeing him now, but believing in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Isn't that something? Joy inexpressible and full of glory. If you have a hard time remembering that phrase, you ought to learn the song. There is joy unspeakable and full of glory. Yeah, there's a little tone. I don't remember the tune, so I won't sing it. But uh, you should remember that. This is what God wants you to experience through faith in Christ. He says, though you haven't seen him, you love him. Though you're not seeing him now, but believing in him, that's faith. You rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's wonderful. That we can actually experience the joy of the Lord. Uh, my wife put a, a little plaque right in a, in a very crucial spot where I'll see it every day. And it says, uh, the joy of the Lord is your strength. She did that as kind of a joke because my mother probably told me that a thousand times. That used to be her favorite expression in her, in her later years. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And it's true. That's what the word of God says. And so God's given us a soul so that we can enjoy him. Isn't that amazing? That he actually wants you to enjoy him. He wants you to delight in him. That's what the word love means. It means to delight in someone. When you love a person, you delight in them. You appreciate them. You value them. And it makes you happy. Now, I think every husband here ought to have a big smile on his face because you understand that, that that wife that God gave you was a gift from him, wasn't it? It's true. It's wonderful that he has, he's given us life so that we could enjoy it, and he's given us himself so that we could enjoy him. And so this is what he says, admonish and really comfort the small soul, help the weak, and be patient with all. Be patient with all. Have you ever had people tell you that? You just need to be patient with them. Nobody else has had anybody tell them that? I have that all the time. You just need to be patient. And it's true. That's what he says, be patient with all. I love this, this word. The Greek word here for patient is makrothumia. Now, thumia sounds like heat, doesn't it? That's what it is, thumos. It's, it's, but makra is the word from which we get a word, macro. You know what a macro is? You use it all the time if you have a computer. A macro is a command that's an overall command, so it controls the whole mess. It's not just for one app. It's, it's to do with the system. And so what he means, it's a word for the big picture. And what, he, what that word means is keep your anger a long ways off. Keep your boiling point way down the road. Don't be ready to explode. You know anybody like that? That just like that, they can explode. Just like that, all of a sudden, they're angry, and it's coming out of them. It's spewing out of them like crazy. Why are you looking at people sitting around you? <laughs> he says, we are to be patient with all. Keep our boiling point a long ways off. Keep your anger a long ways off. And then he finally says in verse 15, do not repay evil for evil. You know, there are going to be people that bug you in the church of Jesus Christ, I mean, in, in, if they're not in this local church, they'll be in another place that you're going to run into them. And they're not going to be all that happy about you. But he says, don't return evil for evil. What does that mean? Well, it means what Jesus said. Do you remember what he said in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
what, he, what that meant was, the Jews had that as a saying, and what it meant was, love your Jewish neighbor and hate your Gentile enemy. Now, we wouldn't fall into that kind of trap, would we? There's certain classes of people that you love and certain classes of people that you hate. And Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, you'll be just like God when you love your enemies. Now, some Christians really think the main thing we should do is get out there in the street and let people know who we hate. And yet, that wasn't what Jesus did. Did you notice his ministry modus operandi? He always was going to people who we think should have been his enemy, and yet he treated them as though they were precious to him. It kind of reminds you of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, where it says, God uh, desires all men to be saved. Now, however you unravel that, one thing is for sure. God is a people lover. Jesus Christ is a people lover. And he wants us to love even our enemies. He says, because he says that God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect or mature as your heavenly Father is mature. Get mature enough to love people who, who have treated you like an enemy. And yet you treat them like a friend. You treat them as though they have some special value to you. I was telling somebody the other day about a, a situation a few years back. I had a business that was right across the street from a a club that was filled every night with people probably doing, I don't know what, but they would come out of there every morning and they could barely see the sun was so bright. It was overwhelming them. These guys were there every day. And I got to know a few of them. And I began to share the gospel with them. I remember sharing the gospel with this one guy who had a couple of girls that was with him all the time. It was one of the girls he put on the street. And I started sharing the gospel with him. And this is what I told him. I said, if you want to have a relationship with God, you've got to be perfect. And it was real quiet. And he said, do you think you're perfect? And I said, yeah. But i got to explain it to you. It's this way. What God does, he makes you perfect by joining you to Jesus Christ. And he gives you a new identity. And in this new identity, you have taken on the perfection of Jesus Christ by faith, simply by believing him, trusting him. And all of a sudden, you become perfect in the eyes of God. And he brings you into his family and makes you his. That's, and you know what? The, the word of God tells me that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to tell my enemies the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm supposed to communicate to them that this is proof that God cares about you. The proof that he loves you is this. He sent his son into this world to rescue you, to make you right with him, to reconcile you with the living God. That's why he sent his son into the world. I have a friend who wrote a book called uh, Worth a Son. And we used to give him a really bad time about this because we were trying to tell him that sounds like you're saying that people are really, really valuable to God. And so he was willing to do this. And he wasn't saying that. He was simply saying, this is what God was willing to pay for you. This is what he was willing to do to save you. He was willing to send his only begotten son into the world to go to the cross on your behalf. And now he wants you to embrace him by faith. And so he says to them, don't repay evil for evil. Give good. Give the gospel and give the fruit of the gospel to those who don't deserve it. Have you ever noticed this, that sinners don't deserve salvation? I'm talking about you. You don't deserve salvation, do you? But you received it, and you received it freely by faith. God says, I want to give you this life. And you said, I receive it. That's how he is. And so he's called you to be that way as well. He's called you to love people in the same kind of way. 
Now, the next group of people he talks about is that we are to be encouragers to strugglers. That is, people that struggle with things, you know, they're not perfect. Have you noticed that? That there are people in the church of Jesus Christ that are far, far, far from perfect and have real big weaknesses. And so he says that here. How do we do it? He says we do it through constant joy and incessant prayer. Constant joy means you're joyful all the time. We're told we should be, we should be joyful when things go well and when things go bad. We're supposed to be joyful. Why is that? Because we have this treasure. We have this relationship with the living God. And so I can have joy 24 hours a day. Now, I'm not saying I do. So please don't go and talk to my wife. Uh, But this is what he says, that we are to be joyful incessantly. And the other thing he says is we're to pray Continually. Now, he uses a different word. He doesn't mean you pray 24 hours a day, so get some sleep. But he does say, what he does say is that you, ought to, you never sign off. It's okay to say amen, but realize that doesn't mean, okay, that's all I have to say. Talk to you when I get there. No, whenever you are awake, have you noticed this? Whenever you're awake and alone, you can't help but talk to the living God. If that hasn't become your modus operandi yet, it will. If you walk with Christ, you'll discover that when you get, you're living your life and everything else is kind of out of the way, you can't help but talk to the living God. And that's what he says we're to do. We're to pray constantly. We're to pray without signing off over and over again. So in everything that we do, this is what First, Second Corinthians chapter 6, verses 4 through 10 says. In everything we do, we show that we are true servants of God. We patiently endure troubles and hardships and calamities of every kind. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses, in the insults, in the hardships, in the persecutions. This is Paul saying this. And troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, when you're weak, the reason you're strong when you're weak is that's when you talk to him, when you realize you're weak. Now, when you don't realize your weakness, when you don't realize your neediness, then you might, you might not even talk to the Lord. You might sing your favorite rock and roll song or something. You know? But the one you should sing is Bob Dylan's, you know, he, sang, he wrote a song called uh, Change My Way of Thinking and Stop Being Influenced by Fools. That's when he made a profession of faith in Christ. And uh, that's what we should be doing, but uh, we have constant joy, and uh, we never sign off in our prayer. That's what we do for those who are strugglers. They're going, they're having a difficult time. I love the fact, I've met people in my life who, who stuck with me when I thought I would drive them crazy because I was so beaten down over things. I remember a guy that used to come out and see me where I live now. And uh, I was amazed at him because... He was just one of those guys that made you feel so comfortable with him. You just told him the truth about how wretched you were (laughs) and how needy you felt. And he just kept on serving Christ in my life. He kept on telling me the truth that I needed to hear. See, that was a guy who understood he had become an encourager. He was there to encourage. And there are people that you need to encourage that need it so badly that you're really tempted to just to stay away from them. But that's not what he wants you to do. And then uh, we, we are to practice incessant prayer. Just remember, just take up where you left off. The next group he talks about is in, be, to be an encourager to worshipers in regards to the presence of God. We are to be encouragers to worshipers. You know who that is? That's every believer in your fellowship, whatever part of your fellowship it is. It's every believer is a worshiper. It's something we've been called to do. And this is what he says we're to do in regards to these worshipers. First of all, we're to stop quenching the Holy Spirit. Stop quenching the Holy Spirit. This is the opposite extreme of the Corinthians. If you go back and read about the Corinthians and their relationship to Holy Spirit, They had no controls at all, and they didn't even listen to what Paul said. He had told them, this is what you're supposed to do about 
the work of the Spirit in the life of his people. So he says, and then he says, stop despising prophetic utterances. Now this could be embarrassing, couldn't it? Stop despising prophetic utterances. Don't treat them with contempt. Now these prophetic utterances were probably misused by some people within the church at Thessalonica. Paul warns them against overreaction. He says that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. You know what he's saying? You can, there, it does happen that people claim that God has told them something. I don't know if you've ever had somebody do that, come up to you and say, hey, the Lord wanted me to tell you something. And then they tell you something you don't want to hear. Like they told my, my father-in-law one time, a guy came up to him and said, you know, the Lord told me to tell you this. You should not drive your truck this week or you're going to die. I heard Dad's response was, you know, I know him pretty well. And I think if that was true, he would have told me himself. Because <laughs> he had been a believer for about 50 years. So he had confidence that if God wanted him to know that, he would choose another way than to have this guy come up and tell him that God told him that's what was going to happen to him. And you know, he kept living. He lived until he went to heaven to be with Christ. So we are, we are to not despise the Spirit's work and when it talks about the, the quenching the spirit, and, and that is to stifle him. We don't want you to act like that God actually is at work in your life. We don't want you to be moved by anything. We don't want you to show any effects of the word of God penetrating your life. And so he says here that they should not treat it with contempt, but they should examine everything. See that? Verses 21 and 22, examine everything. Can I give you an example of what it means to examine the work of the Spirit? Let me show you in the Scriptures what it says. It, it, it turned back to uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 28. 1 Corinthians 14. Can you switch back and forth that quick? 1 Corinthians 14, 28 and 29. Okay, verse 28 says, But if there be no interpreter, he's talking about somebody speaking in tongues. Now this is in the early, this is in the early church. So this isn't an issue of what's called cessationism or continuationism, which is two different views. Some believe that the, the, the gifts that were given in the first early church are still being given, and others believe that they are no longer given because we have the Word of God, we have the Bible. And so they believe that those things are no longer given. It doesn't really matter because this is what he says we're to do. If somebody has a, is, has a tongue and he's talking about speaking to the congregation in an unknown language, but it's probably in the language of the world, he says, if there's no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church. Let him speak to himself and to God. And then the second thing he says, he talks about prophetic utterances. He says in verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others Pass judgment. Now, you know what's scary about this? I think preaching is a prophetic utterance because we're preaching the word, the truth of the word of God. And you know what? I don't want you guys to pass judgment on my sermon. I would rather not know. <laughs> I'm only kidding, but can you imagine what, how, the pressure that would be for people who spoke and claimed to be speaking for God to people? when there were these prophetic utterances given. And so he says, what you have to do is the others have to judge whether this is consistent with what God has revealed in his word. This is called, this Bible is called, the Bible that you have, every Bible is called a graphe. Uh, it, it is the word of God in the form of writing. Have you ever noticed this, that it doesn't matter if somebody comes up to you and says, you know, the Lord spoke to me and said this. You probably have a hard time remembering it if you're me. By three in the afternoon, I would have forgot what they said. Oh, they said something about this or that or the other thing. But you know, you can't get rid of this. This is with you all the time. And so every time you open the book and you see what he has said, and you know what he has said. And so this is what's wonderful about this. This is where we have clarification. The Bible tells us. And so what he's telling them to do 
is that what they say has to jive with what the Word of God says. For example, in Romans chapter 12, verse 6, you know, we have several places in the Bible that talks about spiritual gifts being exercised, like in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, and Romans chapter 12, 1 Peter chapter 4, and so forth. And so what he says in Romans chapter 12, verse 6, when he talks about prophesying, prophesying he says this, that when a person prophesies, it has to be, and, it's, and then he used the word analogia, like analogy, it has to be analogous to this. It has to be analogous to the word of God, to the faith, it's called. In the, in the little book of Jude, this, that's referred to as the New Testament. Does it, is it really saying what the New Testament says? Do you think people ever use that kind of thing to deceive people? Yes. Many times. People use this supposed spiritual exercise in which they're simply trying to manipulate people. If I just told you, you know, I feel like God's speaking to me right now, and he's saying, you know, this congregation ought to raise uh, half a million dollars for me this week. Would you suppose that that was probably a deception? Of course. Now, and so what he's telling us is simply that we ought to be willing to submit what we say that God has told us to others to say, is that sufficient? Is that exactly what, would that, does that coincide with the word of God, with the written word of God, the graphe? Because Paul says this, he says, pasa graphe theanustas, which means all of scripture, all of written scripture. Graphe, we get our word writing with that graphe, like graphic, and he says, all the written scriptures are God-breathed and are profitable for teaching. They're profitable for teaching and rebuke. You know what rebuke is? That's, that's the word we talked about before, nuthatel, to tell you when you're wrong. I'm so grateful for people who, will, who, who have got spiritual maturity enough to say, you're wrong about this. That's what, that's what rebuke is. He said it's profitable for teaching and for rebuke and for correction. You know what correction is? It's getting right. It's doing the right thing. Instead of doing the wrong thing, do the right thing. So he says this is, this is the nature of this book. Now, it may be that you have some private prophet that runs around with you, and he's always telling you what God wants you to know, and he might only tell you good stuff. This won't do it. When you read this book, it's going to tell you the truth. And it's going to tell you that you're wrong at times. And it's going to tell you how to get right. I always think of those two words, reproof and correction, as like riding a dirt bike. I used to ride a dirt bike over in uh, uh, Point Richmond. And there were big ruts. I mean big ruts. Every hill you went up, you get in a rut. Because of the nature of the soil there. And if you got in one of those ruts, you start up a hill, you couldn't get out of it unless somebody knocked you down. That's reproof. And all of a sudden, okay, you're stopped, and then you have to correct yourself. You have to get back on a place that, that is decent for writing, because you get in some of those ruts, and they, they'll, they'll be as deep as the wheel is, and you can't ride in that. And sometimes in the Christian life, you get going down a path, and you need somebody to you need the, the God of the universe to speak to you through somebody, through his word and so forth, that, hey, you're going in the wrong direction. You need to go to the right or to the left. You need to do this or that. We need to hear what the word of God says. And that's, that's what, that's what Nuthateo is. It's telling you that you're wrong. Look, it's real clear here. It's like when Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, why are you trying to get the speck out of your neighbor's eye when you have a log in your own eye? First, get the log out of your eye. That's correction. And then you can see to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Do you get that? What he's saying is there are times when you feel so motivated to straighten somebody else. You know, you, I need to tell you this. You're a jerk. That's how, that's how we feel. That's not the way God does it. What God says... No, get the, get the log out of your eye. 
so that you can see to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. And so God, God wants us to use the word of God, and he wants us to judge when it's not being used properly. He wants us to submit to others. I, I wrote an email to a friend of mine the other day, or a text message probably. No, it was an email. I wrote an email, and I went on and on and on about something I'd been reading that had such impact on me. It had me so excited, and it was, it was a biblical truth. And so I wrote to him, and I was telling him all this, and I said, man, I sound like I'm off my rocker, don't I? I'm, I've lost my bearings. And he said, uh, he sent me an email back about three hours later, and he said, hey, I'm sorry I'm at the doctor's. I have a doctor's appointment, but I think your bearings are okay, and I'll get back to you later. <laughs> I've never heard from him since. <laughs> but, you know, what we need to do is to submit what we think God is speaking to those who can judge it. We had one time in this church when we decided to build that building, somebody suggested from the congregation, let's all go get a second, a second mortgage on our houses and put the money in the pot and we'll build a church with, those second mortgage, with the money from those second mortgages. And uh, so we had to tell her that was not a biblical way to finance a building. And if you, you can imagine if somebody was saying, you know, the Lord spoke to me and said, this is what we ought to do. She didn't do that. She was just making a suggestion. But if, if you can imagine within the church what Paul is telling them to do at Thessalonica is when somebody comes up with a prophetic utterance, then you need to su submit it to the, is it consistent with the revelation we have in this revelation? in this graphe, in this writing. See, that's the wonderful thing about this book. Even if you think there are still, I don't really think there are prophetic utterances today. I don't think people, when they prophesy there, I don't think that happens, but, but I don't know. I'm just, that's just my, that's my opinion. But I know this, this is God's word. And we can submit whatever we say is what God wants us to do to this word. You know, if we imagine if your son came and you said, you know, I believe God wants me to marry a blonde. And you look at the word and you says, you know what this says? It says that God wants you to marry a godly wife who loves Jesus Christ more than she loves you. You can submit that prophetic word to the word of God. It has to line up with this. And then in the conclusion of this passage, he's finishing the book. And this is what he says in verses 23 through 28. Do you see that? First, he says, Paul's, he gives them his prayer for them. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. You can rest in the fact that everyone he's saved, he's going to bring to completion. And he's going to bring you into the presence of Christ when he comes. Secondly, he makes a request of them. In verses 25 through 27, he says, Brethren, pray for us. Pray for us. And I would say, please do. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I tried to give a brother a holy kiss this morning, and he wasn't up, up to it. Uh, He probably thinks a holy kiss is when you kiss his ring or something. I adjure you by the Lord to have the letter read to all the brethren. We need to be in the word. And this word was came to them, and need, they need to be in it. And then his blessing on them, he gives in verse 28. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That's a verbless clause. All that means is this is a very deep, expressive statement that Paul is making. He's telling, he's telling him, I want you to know that I want the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to be with you. I want it to manifest itself in all of your life. The word of God, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, this written word that we have here. Most of us have this in one binding. You can buy this in 66 different books if you want, but you can typically buy it in one binding. Mine's coming apart. I feel like the Lord's telling somebody they should buy me a new Bible. <laughs> I guess not. 
I don't, hey, it isn't, it isn't broken right now. I don't know why. Anyway, um, so, and then uh, in what we are told in John 14 through 16, that when Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to send the Spirit to you, and the Holy Spirit's going to lead you into all the truth. He's going to remind you of everything I said, and he's going to show you things to come. That's the New Testament. That's what we have in the New Testament. It's, it leads us into all the truth. That's the epistles. He reminds them of all that Jesus said. That's the Gospels. How in the world did John, who's in his 80s or 90s when he's writing the Gospel and the other short books that he wrote, how does he remember all these things that Jesus said? I got a kick out of this. In John 7, 37, Jesus says, at the, this is at the, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, and in the midst of it, he cries out to them and he says, if anyone's thirsty, because they've been talking about God supplying water to them in the wilderness journey, and he says, if anybody's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And then John, 95-year-old John says, he spoke this about the Holy Spirit because he had not yet been taken up and he had not given the Holy Spirit. He understood, as, an, as a 95-year-old man, he understood what Jesus had said 60 years ago. And that's because Jesus said the Holy Spirit would cause them to remember everything he said. So I just want to tell you that all of you have been called to be encouragers. He wants you to encourage his people to walk with him, to believe him. He wants you to encourage them to share their faith with others. I'm always amazed when God does something in a person's life when you share Christ with them. It's, it's always stunning to me. That guy I was telling you about, he actually came back and talked to me by himself. And he wanted to know more. I don't know if he ever got saved, but he certainly was impacted by the gospel. And that's all we can do is speak the gospel. And we want to do it in power and in the Holy Spirit with much full conviction. And we can only do that if God wills and if God does produce that in us. That's my, that is my prayer for you, that you would be used by God to encourage his people, whoever they are that is in your path, that you would encourage them, and God would use, to, use you to encourage them. That's my prayer for you. So let's, uh, let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father, thank you so much for your grace. We pray that you would cause your word to sink deep in our hearts and that we would live out this truth. We would be encouragers of all those people that you bring into our life, Father. We pray that we would, we would make that a continual pattern of our life, that we would encourage your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.